David is now approaching his final years, reflecting upon his life. He breaks forth in a song of praise to the God of his salvation. This is the 49th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel in chapter 22. 2 Samuel in chapter 22, the first 29 verses, by inspiration of God, David sings this psalm. And David spake unto the Lord the words of his song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my Savior. Thou savest me from violence. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. When the waves of death compassed me, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord And I cried to my God, and he did hear my voice out of his temple, and my cry did enter into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils, and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also, and came down, and darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly. And he was seen upon the wings of the wind. And he made darkness pavilions round about him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Through the brightness before him were coals of fire kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and discomforted them. And the channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were discovered at the rebuking of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them that hated me, for they were too strong for me. They prevented me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, hath he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also upright before him, and have kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore, the Lord had recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyesight. With the merciful, thou shalt show thyself merciful. And with the upright man, thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure, thou wilt show thyself pure. And with the froward, thou wilt show thyself unsavory. And the afflicted people thou wilt save. But thine eyes are upon the haughty, that thou mayest bring them down. For thou art my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord will lighten my darkness. Paul writing to the Christians at Rome in Romans in chapter 8 beginning in verse 31 through the end of the chapter 39 31 through 39 
Romans chapter 8. By the same Spirit, the Apostle Paul, echoing the Psalmist David, says this, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is ever at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the promises of God stay with us forever, for He is our God, and He will deliver us from all our, our iniquity and from all of our enemies. It seems that now, finally, after all of these trials and tribulations that David had endured, he finally has rest from all of his enemies. And you think about this, when, when David reflects now upon his life, you think about what he had to endure. He endured the trial of his youth against the giant Goliath. He experienced the rise of power, the rise to power in the court of Saul. And then... He experienced his falling out of favor with Saul, as well as enduring his exile from Saul. He also had to endure the sorrow of losing his beloved brother Jonathan, and at the same time, weeping over the loss of Saul as well. Even as Christ wept over the fall of Adam and over the apostasy of Jerusalem. David also had to endure the temptation of his own flesh, of adultery and murder, which resulted in a long train of sorrows, including the death of his newborn son from Bathsheba, the rape of his daughter, and the vigilantism of his own son Absalom against his son Amnon. He then had to endure the revolt of his son Absalom, and then the revolt of Sheba. This resulted in the petty dispute between the tribes of Israel and Judah, which David had to navigate that as well. That was also something he had to endure. And as a result of the injustice against the Gibeonites by Saul, Israel was then stricken with a famine which lasted for three years. Again, David had to endure that as the king, testing him once again. And now, well advanced in years, and seeking to build a dynastic kingdom beyond what God had ordained for him by numbering the armies of Israel and Judah, God gives him choices of a chastisement, And David is plagued with a pestilence which decimates 70,000 of his people. Again, as the king, he had to endure that. And then he had to show himself as part of his love for his people by offering himself up as a sacrifice, as well as 
offering up his entire legacy, including his family line, as a sacrifice in order to end the plague and to spare Jerusalem, his people. Seeing this, God repented of that plague, of the destruction of Jerusalem, and he spares the city, even as God repented of the destruction of his people, even though they had fallen in Adam. By David's offering of a sacrifice, he shows his shepherding love for his people, anticipating the shepherding and the sacrificial love of Christ for his people, the New Jerusalem. And so now here in chapter 22, David is approaching the end of his days on earth. And as I imagine with all of us, as we approach the end of our days on this earth, we too will reflect upon our life and the great mercies that God had granted to us amidst all of our adversities. And this is what David is doing. He is reflecting upon his life and all of the mercies that God had granted to him amidst all of his adversaries. And this is how he begins. Notice, And David spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all of his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. David's first response to the mercy of God is to sing God's praises. And notice, David, here is a man that understands. Here's a man that understands something that we need to take hold of. He understands that without the intervention of God in his life, he would not have been spared. And once again, we see a man, David himself, sensitive to what I call the active, energizing, providential work of God executed in the confines of time and history, particularly in his own life. The active, energizing, providential workings of God, executing all things according to God's will and for the benefit of David, the good and the bad alike. David understood that God is not like the God of the deists. God is not like the God of the deists who removes himself from the affairs of men and nations, letting them fend for themselves without any divine intervention, ongoing continuity of interventions. This theological knowledge was able to keep David from fears that that were natural to man. He was able to keep his fears at bay, knowing that God was in complete control, complete and utter control of the happenings, every detail of his life, everything that happened in his life and in the life of all flesh, especially his enemies. He wasn't concerned that things were going to go out of control because God was in control. David knew that he lived his life in the eye of God. He had already testified to this life-comforting reality in Psalm 9, verse 10. Notice what he says here. Again, here's a man that's living his life in the eye of God, under the oversight of God. Notice what he says. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. And here is a promise. David is saying, Lord, you have not forsaken them that seek thee. David knew the sovereign power of God because he had experiential knowledge of it. It wasn't some theological lesson that he heard in seminary. He had experiential knowledge. He was an experimental man. He knew that God was powerful. It was not merely an intellectual ascent of the mind, but an actual experimental understanding of God's complete control over all things. He trusted in the authoritative name of God, the sovereignty of God, that he alone ruled the universe, including and especially the activities of men 
and nations that they inhabited. He understood that God sets the boundaries of what men can and cannot accomplish according to God's will. Notice, men can do nothing unless God ordains it. All things, David understood that all things were in the control of God, the God who is the controlling, authoritative God of the universe. He knew that without exception, God controls everything. And this was the fact that David relied upon. Later, in the history of Israel and Judah, Jeremiah uses a historical reality to elaborate spiritual truths. In Jeremiah 5 and verse 22, God speaks to the men of the earth, declaring that just as he has set the boundaries for the sand and the sea, so too has he set boundaries on what men and nations can and cannot do. Note his declaration. Fear ye not me, saith the Lord. Will ye not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass it? And though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet can they not pass over it? God is setting the boundaries. Paul and John also testify of God's mighty providential workings for the benefit of his bride, the church. Note how Paul seeks to comfort the brethren at Corinth. And remember, the Corinthians were in the midst of the Roman Empire, a tyrannical empire. To declare Christianity was to sentence yourself to death. Notice what he tells the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. Why? Because they understood the God of the universe was in control of all things. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Why? Because they understood God was in control of everything. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Why? Because God would never forsake His own. Cast down, but not destroyed. Why? Because God is in control. How could Paul say that even though all seem lost, he and they could be encouraged that God was in complete control so they would not be forsaken? Because they knew something about God experientially. John explains that when God is determined to providentially execute something, nothing can happen otherwise. So when God determines to do something, that is what is going to be done. Likewise, when he is determined to keep something from happening, that thing will never happen. In short, he controls all things to the smallest detail where even the birds of the heavens are controlled by His sovereign will. Not one bird will fall to the earth without the ordination of God. Not one hair will fall from your head without the ordination of God because He is in the smallest detail of life. And this was an incredible comfort for the people of faith. John explains how Jesus controls what happens or what doesn't happen in Revelation 3. Jesus speaking, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. So if the door is open, it's open. No man can shut it. If the door is closed, no man can open it. David was a man who knew that God was in total control and it was that faithful trust that enabled him to survive his trials. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, I tell you all the time, please, when navigating things, when you're concerned about things, when you're seeking a pathway forward, factor in God 
And what I mean by that is factor in the fact that he is sovereign and he is in total control, complete control over all things. David was a man who knew that and recognizing that God had shown him great mercy. David just sings out. He was reflecting upon all of the things that God had done for him and he sings. How could he not? I mean, honestly, how could he not? After seeing what God had done, even, even in the face of all of his foibles, and all of his warts, and all of his sins, and all of his destruction, he sings because of the mercy of God. How could he not? How could he not meditate upon God daily? How could he not thank Him continually? So first, he refers to God as Yahweh, the covenant God, the God of the covenant. He speaks unto the Lord these words. By this title, David recognizes that God is faithful to his covenant. And so David refers to him by his covenant name, which is only reserved for the faithful covenant children. And so in a very real way, David is addressing God as a son to a father. When teaching the apostles to pray, Jesus shifts from identifying God as Yahweh and tells his followers to address him as Father. And this is how ye ought to pray, Our Father, making us brethren with one Father, we sons and daughters and children of God. This did not mean that God was no longer the covenant God. Rather, it meant that God had fulfilled His promise of a covenant relationship so that those who were now yoked to Him by covenant can call Him Father. And this is why the Apostle Paul speaks of God and he tells the church of Corinth to call Him Abba, Abba Father. It's like saying, Daddy, my Father. This relationship of Father was a blood covenant relationship that could never be annulled or broken since it was confirmed by the blood of the incarnate Son of God, making us sons and daughters as well. And this title is far more intimate than the legal title of Yahweh or the legal title of the covenant God. We, we understand that when we speak of the Father, God the Father, it's a familial covenant title in that it yokes individuals to a family tie. We have a family tie with God the Father. We have a blood relationship with God the Father through the blood tie of Jesus Christ the Son making us blood relatives. And so David appeals to God in humble thanksgiving as a son to a father. This is how he approaches God. This is the comfort of a son to a father who is in need. And he goes directly, first and foremost, to God, his father. How many times do we go elsewhere for counsel? How many times do we, we go elsewhere for comfort? David immediately goes to God, the father, because he is the comforter himself. Secondly, well, the scripture refers to being delivered from all of his enemies. Notice how Saul is singled out as one of David's most formidable enemies. Perhaps it was Saul that was David's worst enemy. Even more than Absalom or Doeg or Sheba. In fact, Saul is singled out beyond even Goliath or the entire nation of the Philistines. So one would think that Goliath would be his chief adversary, or the nation of the Philistines, his chief adversary. But no, it's Saul. Saul is singled out. This is probably due to the fact that Saul is actually a representation of Adam, who was actually the first king of the earth. But this psalm is almost identical 
to Psalm 18 with some minor variations. Yet the overall message is identical, which initially leads us to believe that they are one and the same. So on further examination of the title of Psalm 18, if you look at the titles, the titles of the Psalms, they're inspired as well. We are further convinced that these two, Psalm 18 and here in the Song of David in 2 Samuel 22, are one and the same. Notice Psalm 18, verse 1, in the title to the chief musician, a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. It's the same psalm. The title tells us that the psalm was written after David's deliverance from all his enemies and from Saul. Now, if the psalm was written only after David had been delivered from Saul, David could not claim that he had been delivered from all of his enemies. There were still many enemies that had to be vanquished, and certainly he couldn't say that then. <coughs> Furthermore, at this point in David's life, in Second Samuel 22, David had already retired from the battlefield. He no longer was required to meet the enemies on the battlefield, face to face. His tenure as king had come to a close, pretty much. And so we must conclude that these psalms are actually the same. The only reason why we might find minor variations is not because they're different, but because they're highlighting additional truths. And the best way to read these two renditions is to put them together in order to understand the fullness of their recordings. So let's consider for a moment the structure of David's psalm. The title tells us, the audience, that it was written for a very particular purpose during a very specific time. It tells us that this was written for a very particular purpose during a very specific time at the end of David's life, at the end of his warfare exploits, and at the end of his tenure as a warrior. The first three verses are called the praise openings or the the hallelujah openings, the hallelujah verses, if you will. In fact, the Reverend Hengstingberg calls the entire psalm a great hallelujah, which with David retired from the theater of life. So it's right at the end of his life. David begins in this psalm by reflecting upon his entire life as a life lived in the eye of God and under the protection, direction, and instruction of the Almighty. And his conclusion is, I will love thee, O Lord of my strength. Note the declaration of David's will. I will. I will. He is going to make it his life's purpose to love the Lord with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his strength, even as Moses had taught him. And this is David's will. Now notice in Psalm 18, verse 1, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. He begins this way. He's declaring his love. In other words, this is my intention. Though the mountains be removed into the sea, Although the heavens collapse upon me, I will love you. Even when God was chastening David, when he was fearful of his life, he was determined to love God. Now sometimes that's tough, especially in the throes of life when it comes upon us in a very traumatic and dreadful way. It is sometimes very, humanly speaking, it is very hard to trust God and then to love Him. The death of a child, the death of a loved one, a, a, a terminal disease, 
How do you, how do you love God when you know, theologically you know, God has ordained this disease. God has ordained this death. God has ordained this calamity. How do you then say, I will love you? Well, David is just mustering up his, his intention and saying, I will, even in the face of all of that, I will love you, O Lord, because you are my strength. The second portion of the psalm from verse 4 to 19 deals with David's distress. He lays out his life, his deliverances, and how God was angered at the wicked. In the third section, verses 20 and following up to 28, which is a new paragraph in the psalm through verse 28, protests that God had acted righteously in destroying the wicked and delivering David. And in the fourth and final section, verses 29 through 45, which we'll undertake at another time, it recounts how God had actually delivered David by making him strong. Because David understood that he was not strong, but God made him strong. And he was trusting in the hand of God upon him. Let's consider for a moment the details of the psalm. I think this is one of the most fabulous psalms in the entire canon. Consider the details. After the opening of David's expression of his love and praises for God in chapter 18 of the Psalms, he immediately explains who God is to him in symbolic language. And notice in chapter 22 of 2 Samuel, David identifies God as his rock. And this is the same language of Psalm 18. Notice, he identifies him as his rock, his fortress, his deliverer, his strength, his buckler, his horn of salvation, and his high tower. Notice, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. Notice the, the explanation he's giving as he's looking upon God in all of these wonderful attributes, all of these, all of these phrases identify God in militaristic terms. These are all militaristic terms. Each gives the impression of, of stability. My rock. Security. My fortress. Power. My deliverer. My strength. And this is in whom I will trust these word pictures convey the fact that God is a firm strength and He is one to be trusted. No matter what happens in the world, He is one to be trusted. As the divine deliverer, David is expressing how God causes His people to escape by either carrying them safely away or by destroying the enemies around them. And that's how David viewed God. And this is how we must view God because that is who God is. You see, to David, the, the military general of Israel and Judah, to David, God was the man of war. Yes, yes, father, comforter. But to the enemies, he's the man of war. And as a man of war, David was assured that God would vanquish the enemy. God would secure David's victory. And the power behind his deliverance. And, and what has happened to the modern church today is that they have failed to understand. They have failed to reflect upon the God who is the king of victories. And this is why the culture is the way it is. Today's modern church believes that Jesus Christ is the king who first must lose. Which makes him no king. Which makes him no man of war. He's a man of retreat. 
but he must first lose in order to win in the confines of time and history. You see, the modern eschatology of today's church has neutered the sovereign God. It's castrated him. It's transgendered him from the warrior conqueror that he is into an effeminate, feeble being who is powerless to protect his people and to take dominion over his created order. But that is not the God of Scripture. We need to remember that when we go against the, the wicked of the world. That God is a God who will vanquish his enemies. You see, the modern church has repositioned God by redefining God so that the wickedness of man is greater than the power and the sovereignty of God while on earth. And while this is a blasphemous evil, the real shame is that the church loves this Jesus. The modern church loves this Jesus more than the true Jesus of Scripture who is the mighty God and the Christian stronghold. David would never, David would never have have stood for such a blasphemous description and interpretation of God. And he proves it right here in Psalm 18, 2 Samuel 22. David knew God to be the conquering rock and the buckler to them that put their trust in him. And here is a fundamental principle. Christians will always act according to how they view God. In addition to their eschatological presuppositions, they will act according to their eschatological positions and how they view God. The reality of who God is brought David to act upon it. And by acting upon it, David was able to secure victory. And by acting upon the truth of God and the reality of who he is, David was more than a conqueror. Notice what he says in verse 3, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. Now observe how David's theological understanding of the nature and the power of God resulted in real action. You see, David's theology moved him to a response. It moved him to action. And this is why a theological understanding of God is so vital to the Christian life. Knowing who God is, David calls upon him for help. But David does not call upon God merely because he knew God to be his rock, fortress, help, and deliverer. He calls upon God because David knew something about himself. Not only did he know something about God, David knew something about himself. He knew that in and of himself, he was without strength. He was not a rock. He could not deliver himself. He was not a buckler of his own devices. No, he knew himself to be without strength. David knew that he was not God. David's beseeching of God was not only out of a realization that God is all-powerful, but it is also a personal revelation that David is not. David knew that he lacked self-sufficiency, and so he called upon the Lord. That's what we need to embrace, our lack of self-sufficiency. That will drive us to God. When we're afraid, we go to God. When we're sick, we go to God. When we're this or we're that or we're the other thing, and when this happens or that happens, we go to God because we are not self-sufficient. If God is all-powerful, the rock and high tower of security and the confirmation of deliverance, why not call upon Him? Why not call upon Him, not only when we're in distress, but for all things, especially when it comes to warfare against the enemies of the kingdom. Now the next section begins with David's lament and his explanation of his situation. And he does this to show that without the Lord's help, his situation, those situations that he faced, they would have destroyed him. But he also testified 
of his situations in order to show just how faithful God is to his people when they're in distress. And he says this in Psalm 18, verses 4 through 6. The sorrows of death compassed upon me. The floods of ungodly men made me afraid. Notice, he confesses he was afraid. It's a natural thing. And then he calls upon God. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress... I called upon Yahweh and cried unto my God. Notice, he owns him. He is mine. He is my God. I will do what it is that is necessary to, to, to praise him. And notice, I cried unto my God and he heard my voice out of his temple and my cry came before him even into his ears. And here is David's encouragement to us. If the Lord heard David, in the day of his distress. And you think about David's life. Pretty messed up. He did some pretty bad things. His sin did not just simply affect himself. It affected everyone, even the nation. And yet, if the Lord heard him in the day of his distress, even if all of this, then will he not hear us in the day of our distress? Think about it. Just go back in the history of your life. I know you young people don't have much history to go back upon, but you will. And ask yourself the question, has not the Lord been faithful? Has He not protected you and delivered you out of so many things in your past? Of course He has. Furthermore, has He not comforted you when you were in distress or sorrow or pain or confusion? Certainly He has. Even in the most difficult of circumstances. But now ask the question, why? Why has God been so faithful in the past? Because He wants you to trust Him for the future. He wants you to factor in God and trust Him for the future. Because it is the future that is unknown by us. And it is unknown by us, but not unknown to God. And it is that unknown that is fearful. But that unknown should not be fearful if and only if we trust God. Then the future won't be fearful. In fact, if you trust God for the future, you will not only no longer be fearful, you will look at the future as exciting, as hopeful, anticipating, knowing full well that God is orchestrating the future for His glory and for our benefit, His church. And so when we look at the future, we watch. We watch God work and we watch in awe and we watch in wonder. What is God going to do? And now the future is no longer a dark place. It's full of awe and wonder and anticipation because God is working His will in the future. Notice, when David cried to the Lord, he answered Charles Spurgeon comments on this and notice what he says. This is so great. There was no great space between the cry and its answer. In other words, it was immediate. David called, God answered. He didn't get any answering machine. He didn't get silence. He got nothing like that. He answered. Spurgeon says there was no great space between the cry and its answer. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is swift to rescue his afflicted. 
David knew of the Lord's historical deliverance for the benefit of his people, which made him that much more confident that the Lord would deliver him as well. And notice, consider the divine response when David calls upon him, when the enemies are are pursuing him, when he's in distress, when he's confused, when he's fearful. Notice, then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils. Just think about the picturing here. A smoke out of his nostrils. Fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also. He came down. And darkness was under his feet. There were his footstool. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly and was seen upon the wings of the wind. And he made darkness pavilions round about him. Dark waters and thick clouds of the skies through the brightness before him were coals of fire kindled. This is wrath. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered His voice and He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and discomforted them. And the channels of the sea appeared and the foundations of the world were discovered at the rebuking of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of His nostrils. This is fearful language. This is how God responds to the cry of His people that were afflicted by the wicked. He thunders against the enemies of his bride in wrath and in the terribleness of his vengeance and he will not allow his bride to be molested by the wicked. And there is nothing in this psalm that hints that anything but an angry God is going to respond in this way to the wicked when it comes to protecting his people. When it comes to protecting his honor and his glory. This is how God responds. Notice how God shakes the earth, causing it to tremble. This is God rebuking the reprobates of the earth, causing them to tremble by His rebuke. As a fire-breathing dragon, He snorts at them through His nostrils, bringing a consuming fire to proceed out of His mouth. Spurgeon again explains, he says, this is a violent oriental method of expressing fierce wrath. Since the breath from the nostrils is heated by strong emotion, the figure portrays the Almighty Deliverer as pouring forth smoke in the heat of His wrath and the impetuousness of His zeal. Nothing makes God so angry as an injury done to His children. God declares, He that touches you touches the apple of mine eye. So this imagery of fire coming out of God, from God, is again somewhat reflected in John's revelation of Jesus, where out of his mouth comes that sharp, two-edged sword of wrath and vengeance against his enemies, cutting his enemies asunder. But note how God does not merely rebuke from a place far off in the heavens. Again, we are not like the deists. He actually, the scripture says, comes down to meet the enemy on the battlefield of the earth. He comes down to bring them to destruction under the power of of dark condemnation. And herein is a God intimately at work within time and history for the benefit of His people. Notice, He bowed the heavens also and came down. The darkness here refers to the reprobate which are trampled down under His feet. The darkness was under His feet making them His footstool. Added to His vengeance is His sharp rebuke of His law. David remembers the story of Sinai when the Lord thundered from heaven as he declares his most holy law where there was lightnings and thunders and, and arrows and a voice and a trumpet. And anyone that dared to touch the mountain because it was burning with coals of fire, they were destroyed. Obviously remembering that history, David adds this, verse 14, chapter 22 of Second Samuel. 
The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered His voice and He sent arrows and scattered them, lightning and discomforted them. That is language from Sinai. Note also how God has purposed to scatter His enemies so that they are unable to confederate against the Lord and against His Messiah as was stated by the mouth of David in Psalm 2. And it is here where God executes His plan to confound the confederacy of wicked men. Solomon comments on this divine strategy in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And notice the confederacy. Though hand joined in hand, he shall not be unpunished. Verse 16 of 2 Samuel 22 continues to detail God's response. Notice, and the channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were discovered at the rebuke. In other words, they couldn't hide anymore at the rebuking of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. It is in this verse where David tells us that all the evil that is kept secret will one day be exposed. Think about all of the corruption behind closed doors today, whether it's in politics or wherever. It will be discovered. Everything will be made manifest by the Lord. Every secret every hidden wickedness, all of these things will be open before the Lord and before the entire world for all to see and wonder at while God is destroying the wicked in their craftiness. But God does not only destroy the wicked when they seek to afflict the righteous, He actually delivers His people. He's not just destroying the wicked, He's delivering His people out of the hand of the wicked. Even though the wicked seek to frustrate God's deliverance, they are unable to prevent it. And why? Because He's God and they are not. And we see this in 2 Samuel twenty-two seventeen through 19. He brought me forth out of a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. You think about all that David did. Think about all the wickedness that David did. And that's what we have to call it. It was evil. And yet, David can still say, he delighted in me. With all that he had done. With all that he put Israel and Judah through with all that his family had to go through because of what he had done. He is still able to say, is, is he delusional or is, is he right? Can he actually say this, that the Lord delights in him? How? How could he say that after violating the law of God immediately after he was ordained by taking multiple wives? He failed to discipline Joab, the son of Zeruiah, for the murder of Abner. He failed to go to battle when it was time for him to lead his armies, which resulted in his adultery with Bathsheba. He murdered Uriah to hide his sin, and then he had to bear the sorrow of watching his own child die. He comes under the heavy hand of God's chastisement by the prophet Nathan, only to see his son rape his daughter without so much as any rebuke or consequence upon Amnon whatsoever. This led to Absalom's premeditated murder, and once again David did nothing. And yet, here's David, claiming that God delights in him. How in the world, how in the world can that be? Well, it can only be due to the fact that God is delighting in David because he has been a recipient of the atoning blood of Christ. God delights in David in Christ. God delights in David in Christ and for the sake of the mediation of Christ. God delights in his people because they are hid in Christ. David is hid in Christ. And that's why he can say, God delights in me. That's why I'm delivered, because I'm in Christ. 
God delights in his people because they're hidden Christ. And while their actions are actually weighed in time and in history, and consequences are given for sin, nevertheless, they are delighted in because of Christ. But not only are they delighted in, and this is just what's so incredible about God, not only does God delight in his people, Zephaniah tells us, not only does he rejoice over his people in Christ, but he rejoices with singing. He actually, God actually breaks forth in a song because he's delighting in his people who are hid in his eternal son, Christ Jesus. In other words, he's celebrating us. The people of God who are truly his are his joy. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, Zephaniah says in Zephaniah 3.17. Notice, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee. Where two or three are gathered together, there he is in the midst of thee. He is mighty. He is the God of war. But he delights in his people. Notice, he will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Wrap your mind around that. Just for a minute. Now it is obvious that David represents the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore everything in this psalm refers to Christ in the first instance. And yet, this refers to the body of the head which is his bride. And it is evident also that the bride is given all of the benefits of the bridegroom just as the body is given all the benefits of the head. And so as God the Father delights in Christ, God the Father delights in his bride, his body, for the two have been made one flesh. And it is for this reason that David could continue in the next several verses by saying, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, which is in Christ, and because of Christ, according to the cleanness of my hands, he hath recompensed me because of Christ, being hidden Christ. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not done wickedly, and departed from my God, only because of the forgiveness of God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also upright before him and have kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord hath recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyesight. In the first instance, he's talking about Christ, but we are hid in him. Now notice verses 26 to 28. It speaks to the Lord's perfect response to men and nations. With the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. And with the upright man, thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure, thou wilt show thyself pure. And with the froward, thou wilt show thyself unsavory. And the afflicted people, thou wilt save. But thine eyes are upon the haughty, that thou mayest bring them down. God here follows his own principle according to the covenant law, as it is detailed in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 21. God fleshes some of this out in Exodus 23:22, beginning in verse 20, where he says, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Speaking about the Lord Christ. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, notice, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies, and an adversary unto thine adversaries. This is basically the doctrine of lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, and the doctrine of do unto others as they would do unto you. 
David then reiterates that without the Lord, he would have been swallowed up by the enemy. But note how he gives credence to the fact that the Lord is his light. In verse 29, For thou art my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord will lighten my darkness. And this is why David could say, as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, Thou art with me, thy rod, thy staff, it comforts me, you are my light. You, you lighten my darkness, you lighten the path that I need to walk by. He capitalizes on this light-darkness dichotomy, bringing us right back to Genesis 1, where it is the light of the Lord and the light of his logos which exposes the darkness and establishes a stark contrast between good and evil. And this light-darkness theme is found in the entirety of Scripture, separating the wickedness of man from the righteousness of Christ. Now David is assured that the light of God will always dispel his darkness as long as we walk in the light. We need to continue to walk in the light. What is interesting about this declaration is that David yokes the light of God with the law word of God in Psalm 119 as if to say that by his obedience to the law of God he is enlightened out of his natural tendency from his Adamic darkness. So the more you walk in the light of the law of God, you are enlightened out of your tendency to sin according to Adamic darkness. Notice Psalm 119.105. Thy word, the law of God, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. David is saying by obedience to the word of God, he's enlightened and his darkness is subdued. The light here, once again, refers to the Logos, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the express image of the person of the Father. And Jesus makes this perfectly clear when he declares himself to be the light of the world. He too addresses this dichotomy between light and darkness in John 8, 12, when he says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And so with all of David's errors, all of his sins, difficulties, he still was a faithful follower of Christ. And it was that fidelity, it was that loyalty, even in the toughest of situations, as he, as he looked to God in every situation, as he factored in God in every situation, with all of his errors, with all of his sins, with all of his difficulties, He was a faithful follower of Christ and that loyalty enabled him to say that God delighted in him and that God would deliver him. And he was so confident that he was able to sing the praises of God even in his most difficult situations. And so whenever he cried unto his heavenly father through the security of the mediation of Christ, he was comforted. We shall continue to explore David's Alleluia praises and his warrior language when we return to our exposition of 2 Samuel chapter 22. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.